Evening, everyone. I'm going to be looking at some meaty stuff tonight. If you're completely lost, stick your hand up and ask me a question. If you're not lost, don't. Okay, because I've got quite a lot of material to go through. But um, it's, yeah, this is, this is not basics. It is very interesting, though. All of history is divided traditionally into two parts. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., that's Anno Domini, after, after Jesus. But you could quite easily divide all history into a different division, if you will. And that is before Pentecost and after Pentecost. Pentecost, which we're going to look at what it means in a minute, Pentecost is so significant that you could literally divide history into all of time before Pentecost and all of time after Pentecost. Um, you could also divide it into, into before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion, but tonight what we're going to look at is what the world looked like before Pentecost and after Pentecost. What is the significance of Pentecost on a cosmic scale? Pentecost is the name of a biblical feast. The, the Hebrew word for it is Shavuot, or Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. The name Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50 because it's celebrated 50 days after Passover. Remember that Jesus had the Last Supper at Passover? Jesus was, in fact, the sacrificial lamb of the Passover meal, and, and the Feast of Weeks is, is 50 days after that Passover. It's the day when every Jewish male, one of three festivals in the year, where every Jewish male was expected to go to Jerusalem to present himself in the temple. It's the day when the first fruits of the harvest were presented to God in the form of loaves of bread, but presented to God in the temple. So one of the thoughts that I'd like you to hold in your mind, if you would, is the idea that this feast, which, which coincides with the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is a feast of harvest, and that harvest is wheat. It's, it's going to be interesting to see why it's so, but, but, but it is so. Bear with me. It's also the time when the Jewish people celebrated the giving of the law. The giving of the law was given at the time of Shabbat, at the time of the Feast of Weeks. So certainly the, the rabbis and the Jewish people would have associated the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot as a time when God spoke to his people and revealed himself to them. It's, it's known as, as the uh, feast where God reveals himself to his people. Houses and synagogues were decorated with flowers and greenery representing the harvest and, and the law, the Torah, as the tree of life. There's a very interesting part to this. At the time of the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, um, the book of Ruth was read. The book of Ruth is a fascinating book. Um, it's, it's a story of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, of uh, a man who, who redeems a lady called Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth is the hero of the story, though. And Ruth is, in fact, a type of Redeemer as well. She is prepared to give her life for Naomi, and she is, and, and she is in, in, in many ways also a representative of the Redeemer to come, of Jesus, 
I, I don't have the space to look at it tonight, but it really is a fascinating story. And what's outrageous, what's scandalous about that story? And it's, it's not a coincidence that it's read at the time of the Feast of Weeks, is that Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth was from Moab. That was a people that God in the Torah, the Torah had commanded Israel to have nothing to do with, especially don't marry them. And the reason for that was that where um, Israelite men and women would marry Moabites, they would be seduced by the gods of Moab, by Baal and Molech and, and the other nasty um, idols of, of Moab and led astray from serving God. And Ruth, Ruth is a story of exactly the reversal of that. It's a story of how a Moabites falls in love with the God of Israel, falls in love with, with Boaz, a representative of the kinsman redeemer, in a field of wheat. And, and there's a story here of how a Gentile, a, a woman who is not from the, from the nation of Israel, gets woven into the story of God's redemptive process with the people of Israel and, and, and has a role to play in that. And what's amazing is if you look at the book, um, I think it's of Deuteronomy, where the instructions are given for the Feast of Weeks for Shavuot, the very next text below that is all about gleaning. It's all about how the Israelites were not allowed to glean their fields all the way, that were not allowed to, to reap all the way, harvest, that's the word, thank you, all the way, they had to leave some, some wheat on the edges for the poor people to glean. And that's what Ruth did. Ruth's story is, is interwoven right into the story of the Feast of Weeks, right into Shavuot. Ruth is also, and this is interesting for, as a Gentile woman, she is woven into the, the bloodline of Jesus. She is David's great-grandmother. And, and ultimately the, the ascendant of Jesus, of the bloodline of Jesus. So Ruth is not coincidentally read out at the Feast of Weeks. I'm going to link what that has to do with Pentecost in a moment. So I'm going to have a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's a great big junk, chunk of text, so I'm not going to have you open in your Bible. We'll, we'll have it on the overheads, and I'm going to read it to you. When the day of Pentecost arrived, that's Shavuot, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, just the all together there were the disciples of Jesus and the followers of Christ, who Jesus had told, hang around, don't leave Jerusalem. So when it says all, those are the all that is being referred to. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, say that five times fast, 
uh, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, so that's somebody who's converted to, to Judaism, Cretans, that's from the Isle of Crete, and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So I'm going to go through that line by line. Why were they all in one place? Because Jesus, after his death and resurrection, had told them to stay in Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father. So what was the promise of the Father? The promise of the Father was this. It's in several places in the Old Testament. It's that he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Not just on all Israelites, and not just on all men. On all flesh. goes on in, in the prophecy of Joel, which we're going to look at, to, to fall upon every kind of person you can imagine. Male, female, young, old. Um, Jew and Gentile alike. The Holy Spirit, this is the promise, the Holy Spirit was going to fall upon all of them. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were sitting. The violent rushing wind and the violent tongues like fire are both images associated with the presence of God in, in the Old Testament. For example, God appears to the prophet Ezekiel accompanied by wind with fire flashing in the wind. Moreover, the Hebrew word for wind and spirit and breaths, all one word, is ruach. So the Holy Spirit is the ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Breath, the Holy Wind. So it's, it's no coincidence then that, that the Holy Spirit manifests as a mighty rushing wind with tongues of fire. Tongues represent speech, which is exactly what happens when they're filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the ability supernaturally to speak languages that they would otherwise not be able to speak. It's an amazing thing, and we're going to see why they were equipped with that, that gift in a minute. Michael Heiser, and, and some of the stuff I'm, I'm going to be referring to tonight comes from a book of his called uh, the, the Unseen Realm, um, and I strongly recommend that you read it, or you can also read Supernatural. Very, very good books. He points out that fire is not only a symbol of the presence of God, but also represents angels or divine beings or members of the divine council. For example, speaking of angels in Hebrews, Paul quotes Psalm 104 and says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay, I'm going to just do a little side note here. God has two families, a heavenly family and an earthly family. The heavenly family is referred to throughout the Old Testament by a number of different terms. They're referred to as the council of God. They're referred to as the sons of God. That's lowercase s, sons of God, not capital letter S, Jesus, son of God. They're referred to by a range of, of Hebrew terms. We're not going to look at that tonight, but take it from me. There, are, there is a range of supernatural beings, created beings, in the heavens. Some of them are Elohim. Now, Elohim means gods. Elohim is also one of the references to, to God, capital letter G. Um, and, and, and I need to just unpack this a little bit. The Elohim, the existence of Elohim or eternal beings, 
doesn't mean that there's more than one capital letter G God. There's one capital letter G God. One uncreated, eternal, all good, all knowing, all loving God. Only one in three persons. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm not advocating polytheism and neither is Heiser. But there are supernatural beings who are deities with a lowercase d and God's lowercase g and God assigns them territories to, 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 to govern and to look after. If, you, if you'd like to consider that in more detail, have a look at Psalm 82. Um, I haven't got time to look at it tonight, but it, it's quite a, when you read it, it jumps out at you. Now, in Eden, the heavenly families of God, his divine counsel, and the earthly family of God, Adam and Eve, shared the spa same space in Eden. It was a space where those two worlds intersected. And it was a crazy place because it was a place where God walked in the cool of the day among them. The, it, was, it was a place where Satan, who is also one of the Elohim, one of the, um, I say divine beings advisedly, because he is divine, but he's created. Okay, he's not uncreated. Was able to appear and talk to Adam and Eve. And, and they don't go running for the trees. They should have. But they didn't, because they were used to engaging with divine beings. So what has any of this got to do with Pentecost? <laughs> I, I can understand why you'd want to know. In order to understand the full significance of what was happening at Pentecost, we have to travel back to Babel. Anyone know the story of Babel? Stick your hand up. I'll know how much detail I have to go into. Okay, cool. Brilliant. Babel was um, a place in the Old Testament where the, the people of, of, of the world, who all spoke one language, said to themselves, we're going to build a tower, uh, most likely a, a ziggurat or a, or a pyramid, but we're going to build a tower that is going to reach to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. And, and God said to his divine counsel, not happy with this. Let's go among them and divide them and confuse them. And what he did, what God did, is he, he divided their languages so that they're no longer speaking one language. He dispersed them among 70 nations and he assigned sons of God, Elohim, divine beings who are not God, but lowercase g gods, to rule over those nations. In, in one sense, Heiser says he disinherited those nations. There are texts where, where God says of the nation of Israel, Israel is my inheritance, those Gentile nations are not. So Babel is significant. In Deuteronomy, that event is described in the following terms. This is Deuteronomy let me try that again. Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 to 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Listen to that. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob or Israel, his allotted heritage. 
So, the most, so God Most High, Yahweh, describes Jacob or Israel as his portion and his allotted inheritance. The other nations, by contrast, are not his portion. They are assigned to be governed by the sons of God. If you read Genesis 10, I'm not going to go there now, the entire world at the time of the, the Tower of Babel was divided into 70 nations. That was the whole known world. There was more world beyond that, but it wasn't known to them. There was, there was China. There was the Americas. There was the, the southern reaches of Africa, Australia, and all the islands of the world. Those were not nations or, or regions that were known to the people at the time. The known world at that time stretched to the 70 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10. So far, so good. That's the backdrop. Now back to Pentecost. You'll see how this all lines up in a minute. I hope. It says this, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, every nation under heaven, all 70 of them. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The first thing to note is that the reference to tongues in this instance is a reference to language. It's not a reference to what Paul calls a heavenly language. When you speak a language that other people can't understand and you're speaking to God and he understands you and you're edifying yourself. That's not what this is. That's speaking in tongues. This is something different. This is speaking in languages that people could understand. So, these men represent the people of Israel who've been scattered to the 70 nations listed in Genesis 10. They're men who are being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit declaring, sorry, they're not the ones being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're the ones hearing the speech of the ones who've been filled with the Holy Spirit, declaring the mighty works of God in their own language. I have a friend, Stephen Lorenz, he'll be known to some of you, who um, did quite a lot of work in Mozambique. And at the beginning of his, his time in Mozambique, God supernaturally downloaded Portuguese to him. Crazy. Supernaturally. And the crazy thing about it is that, and, and he's worked on it since then, he's got better. The crazy thing about it is that he could speak and pray fluently in Portuguese, but his spoken Portuguese when he speaks to other people was not so great. Now, I don't know whether you've ever tried to pray in a second language or preach in a second language. Let me tell you, that is not easy at all. What, what happened to, to Stephen was supernatural. It was a supernatural equipping with a language like, like Neo in the Matrix got downloaded with a specific power to reach a particular people group. That's what happened at Pentecost. It's amazing. And we're going to see why it's amazing in a minute, or why it's significant. See, what happened at Pentecost is the exact reversal of what happened at Babel. At Babel, people had one language, God divided them up, and gave them different languages. In, in Pentecost, people were all, all together, all different languages, and God gave the individual speakers the power to speak in languages they couldn't even themselves understand 
so that those around them could. So, so in one sense, all the barriers of language are broken down to restore those nations, those 70 nations, to himself. It's the reversal of Babel. It's God reaching out to regather those 70 nations as his own inheritance. The gift of the Holy Spirit was given as a sign not only that the gospel was not intended only for Israel and intended to include the Gentiles, but was also the very means by which the Gentiles would be reached. You see, God's so clever. So he takes those men who've been filled with the Holy Spirit and given a supernatural ability to speak in other languages and sends them back into the 70 nations where they can declare the mighty works of God as representatives of the God who says, I am for all nations and for all people, I will gather them all and reclaim them as my own. I believe in part when Jesus said to his disciples that it was better for him to go so that the Father would send the helper to them so that they could do mightier works than he did, in part what he was talking about was not raising the dead, Jesus did that, was not healing people, Jesus did that. It was taking the gospel of the kingdom of God to the outer corners of the globe, which Jesus in the flesh never did. So you and I get to participate in something greater than Jesus did in the flesh. That's a profound thought. And he does it because of Pentecost. He does it because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh so that everybody would have the supernatural ability to carry the kingdom to the furthest corners of the globe. When, when, when Rosie goes to Syria or to other Middle Eastern countries, she's carrying the Holy Spirit into the darkest corners of the globe and declaring and revealing the light and the love of Jesus in a way that in the natural would be completely impossible. That's what we're called to. Now, there are hints of this in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember when he, he sent his disciples out to drive, uh, to drive out demons and to heal the sick? You remember he sent them out two by two. Remember that? How many? Seventy. Representing the seventy nations that he was regathering for himself. Um, there's another one. You remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples about how the fields are white to harvest? Do you remember that? And he says, pray to the Father that he would send workers out into the field. He's talking about harvest of souls, of, of people who need to be reached with the gospel. The fields that are white to harvest are wheat fields. That's, what it look, that's how you know that wheat is ready to be harvested. They get white ears. So, so Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the harvest feast, the, the feast that celebrates the first fruits of the harvest, is tied to Jesus saying that I'm going to send you out into the fields to gather souls, to the furthest corners of the, furthest corners of the globe. It's all tied together. And they were amazed and astonished and said, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia 
Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and so on and so forth. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The nations listed constitute an east to west sweep through the known world. God commissioned the 3,000 converts who were saved at Pentecost to go back into that world and carry the gospel with them. That was the birth of the church. In fact, as Heiser points out, Paul's missionary work pushed him further and further west. Paul's mission was to spread the gospel to the westernmost corner of the world that was known to him. You'll see there are several references to, in, in, in Paul's epistles to, I must get to Tarshish, I must get to Tarshish, I must get to Tarshish. That was Spain. That was the Iberian Peninsula. That was the furthest west that he could go. Um, because Paul understood that there was, that's where the gospel had to go, because it had to go to the, four, to the furthest, furthest corners of the globe. In Romans, Paul records this, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own, your own sight, spelt incorrectly, that a partial hardening has happened in Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel should be saved. Paul had Isaiah in mind when he said that. So he was saying, I'm Jewish, says Paul. I'm Jewish. I have a passion for the salvation of the, the, the Jewish people. But I know that this mystery has been revealed to me, that Israel cannot be saved until the gospel has gone to all the Gentiles. And the full number allocated of the Gentiles who are going to be saved through the ages, and he probably believed that it would happen in his lifetime. He was wrong. But the, the full number of the Gentiles who are to be saved, including you and I, has to come in so that all Israel could be saved. In Isaiah 66, verses 18 to 20, it says this, for I know, this is God speaking. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming. It sounds like an, an announcement. Coming to get, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Incredible. And they shall come to see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Paul and Lud, and those who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, and the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. Another word for nations is Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and in dromedaries to my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Did you notice the part about Tarshish? The amazing part about this prophecy is part of God's gathering of all the nations and all the tongues is that they would see his glory and declare his glory among the nations. And the, the, the part about that scripture that excites me, it refers to the coastlands who have not heard of his fame or seen his glory. That's the whole rest of the world. That's the world, the globe, beyond the 70 nations listed in Genesis. That's China, that's Taiwan, that's Australia, that's South and North America, that's the southern part of Africa, that is every island in the world. So, so God sets up in Isaiah 66 that this gospel, because of Pentecost, 
is going to reach all the furthest corners of the globe so that God's glory and his fame would be revealed to them. And when it's revealed, and when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved, Jesus will return, and we'll be gathered with him. That is the consummation of the ages. That's the part that you and I get to play. If we are gripped by God's mission, if we're gripped by a global worldview of of what God has to do with us, not our white picket fences, but, but the commissioning of each of us, to fulfill the mandate of God to carry the gospel to the furthest corners of the globe. If we get that right, we partake in God's mission and do greater than Jesus did. That's profound. That's amazing. That, that makes me sit up and listen. Hey? That's pretty cool. I think it's cool. Did you also notice the reference to the Israelites bringing their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord? That's Shavuot. That's Pentecost. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. That's a good question. What does it mean? Let's deal with what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that they were drunk. The only, the only conduct or behavior that is actually described is that they were speaking in different languages. And that some people who were there, not the devout people, the other people, because that's what the word says, others said, mocking, they're drunk. Because they didn't understand it. There was, there was a degree of cognitive dissonance. There's another, there's another instance of that. Kathy pointed this out to me the other day in the Bible where, um, who was it? Sorry? Hannah, yeah, Hannah goes to the temple and is praying, and she's praying without words. She's before God, and she's placing her petition before God, and the priest, Eli, comes and says, hey, put strong drink away from you. Stop drinking wine. He says, I'm not not drunk. I'm praying. She She was declaring the works of God and her deepest desire, and, uh, and the priest missed it. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says this to the believers. I'm, I'm cutting some parts out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you've got a Bible open, just underline that. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's a reference to the apostles. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that's us, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. An, an ancient Middle Eastern, would have understood, Eastern person would have understood what he was talking about. In, in a, a, an important transaction typically to do with land, if you want to, to reserve that land, you paid a deposit. 
was called an earnest price. Or, uh, the, the Latin is ara. You would, you would pay the ara. So, so the Holy Spirit is the deposit that Jesus pays and gives to us as a guarantee that we are sealed and that we're going to receive an inheritance. It's his imprint on us. And, and the, the seal is important because that's what you did to mark something that belonged to you. You would put a signet ring in it, and it would bear your mark, almost like a branding. So Jesus declares with the seal of the Holy Spirit, we belong to him. And not only do we belong to him, but there's an inheritance to come. What is that inheritance? That we would be called the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? The divine council, the heavenly family, who reign with God, some of whom have fallen and will be judged. And you know who gets to judge them? We do. In Corinthians, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, how dare you take one another to court? Isn't there anybody wise among you who can sort this out? Don't you know that one day you will judge angels? That's what he's referring to. So, so in one sense, we will become the sons of God who reign with God, reign with Jesus. That's why the reference to inheritance is, has us placed in heavenly places. Are you following this? It's quite a lot of stuff, and I'm throwing it at you. If anybody has questions, I'm, I'm happy to address them. What we do here prepares us for eternity. What we do here prepares us for eternity. More than that, what we do here determines what we will do in eternity. I'm not talking about salvation. That's, that's something we receive. We have nothing to do with that. Jesus did that. What we do here prepares us for the work and qualifies us for the work that we will do in eternity. You hear that? It's, it's, it's a different concept. I'm not talking about salvation. I don't know whether you've ever thought of this. I mentioned this recently. I'm not sure whether it was here. Give me a couple of words that, that the New Testament uses to refer to salvation. Come, there are a few of them. Throw them out. Born again, yeah. Born again. Peace with God, yeah. New creation, that's great. Reconciled. Adoption. Yeah? Salvation. Okay. Yeah. So let's deal with those four. If you're a new creation, what part do you have in, in, in being created? Nothing. If you're reborn, what part do you have in being born? What choice of it is yours? Not yours. If you're adopted, what choice do you, what role do you play in the decision to be adopted? Nothing. If you're saved, do you get to decide how you're saved? No, that's, that's somebody else decides. Another one is redeemed. Redeemed, that means that, that somebody pays the price for a slave. In all of those, God makes the decision. That's, that's why it says that these works were predestined before the foundation of the earth for us to do, we who are called. So there's, there's something supernatural, and I'm not saying we don't have freedom of choice, of course we do. Of course we do, and, and that, that is woven into the story. I'm not, not advocating that we have nothing to do with it. What I am saying is that salvation seems to me to be primarily the function and purpose of God fulfilled while we breathe. 
what we do with that, the works that he's predestined for us to do, we get to choose to participate in or not. Someone said, I think it may have been Spurgeon, that we will, we will all fulfill the purposes of God, all of us, whether we do so as Judas or as Paul is up to us. <laughs> Quite a heavy statement. Spurgeon didn't pull his punches. Revelation 2 verse 26, this is how Jesus expresses it. Jesus talking to John says this, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Note that we don't get authority over the nations before the end, because you've got to keep the works until the end. Then we get authority over the nations. The Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost not for our sakes alone, but to supernaturally empower us to do the work that God has called and commissioned each of us to do until the end. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not simply for our enjoyment, although there is that. It is primarily an empowering to advance the kingdom of God until he returns. We get to participate in that. We get to be filled with living water so that the streams of living water flow not to us but from us out. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not about us, it's about others, always. We, we get to enjoy the participation in that, by all means, yes. But it's not about us. It's about God and it's about others. At, Pen at Pentecost... We're reminded that we're called to participate in God's story of the redemption of the nations and that our work is not done until the gospel has reached the uttermost corners of the globe and the hearts of those who have not seen the glory of God or heard his fame. We are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can go out and represent Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. What a privilege. What an opportunity. It's not reserved for those select few who get to to lead churches or preach or, or even heal the sick or, or any of those things. Those are all part of the function. But, but if you read Ephesians, you'll see that those gifts are given to equip the saints to do the work of God. The ministers don't do the work of God. They equip the saints to do the work of God. And the saints cannot do that work of God unless they experience their own Pentecost and they're filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers and equips us to do all that he's called us to do. That's the adventure of Pentecost. That's why I say that Pentecost neatly divides history. We, we have the inestimable privilege of walking with God in the fullness of the power of the Spirit imparted at Pentecost. It's an amazing, profound thing. Even Siri agrees. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? We're given this gift. Um, and I, I think sometimes we settle with too little. The picture I had when I was preparing was, was a family who's getting ready for a holiday at the seaside, drawing from a C.S. Lewis example. But getting ready and packing the bags and packing the bodyboards and packing the surfboards and getting the beach towels and heading down to the beach and stopping on the road and swimming in a dirty puddle. <laughs> We're not there. There's more. 
we're far too easily pleased. There's more. There is more. There is more. There is more. And the prisons that we live in are the white picket fences of our souls, you know, the, the easy, comfortable things that so hem us in. There's more. Amen.